Welcome to Breast Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Terry Mamanus from the NSABP, and to better understand some of the key new research strategies of the group, I asked him to present a couple of illustrative patients from his practice. The first case was a patient that I just saw recently in my office. It was a 56-year-old patient who came with a palpable mass in the breast. He discovered this mass and then saw it to her primary physician. In addition, when he examined her, he found also a palpable adenopathy. She had a 3-centimeter node on the left axilla. And in the breast, the mass was about 2 centimeters in diameter, located in the inner portion of the left breast. Of course, mammography showed a questionable density along with adenopathy, and then an ultrasound showed a hypoechoic mass, and on subsequent core biopsy, this was shown to be an invasive ductal carcinoma, ERPR, and HER2 new positive, so triple positive, if you like. And also they did an FNA of the axillary node and showed essentially adenocarcinoma. In fact, actually, when I saw the patient, she had an FNA both of the breast and the axillary node, and then when I saw the patient, I instructed her to go ahead and do an ultrasound and a core biopsy. And the reason was that I wanted to know the phenotype of this patient because, in my mind, that helps me sometimes decide whether I should go ahead with neoadjuvant chemotherapy versus adjuvant therapy, particularly in somebody that is a lumpectomy candidate, and also, obviously, helps us decide what protocol a patient may be eligible for neoadjuvant chemotherapy if she's her to positive versus if she's her to negative. So can you talk a little bit more before you get more into this case about this concept of the phenotype determining your neoadjuvant strategy? Well, obviously, a lot of the information we have gathered in the last few years clearly indicates that different phenotypes of breast cancer respond differently to neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Patients with triple negative disease and HER2 positive disease have actually the higher pathologic complete response rates, which can vary in the range of about 50%, close to 50 or 60%, with some of the more modern trastuzumab-based regimens. On the other hand, we've learned also that patients that are very endocrine responsive, high ER and PR, particularly patients with invasive lobular carcinoma, have very infrequent pathologic complete responses. So if you have a patient like that where you have an extensive disease in the breast, for example, with a lobular carcinoma, if it's very unlikely that you're going to get to a pathologic complete response, it's probably very unlikely that you're going to change the procedure that you're going to do because you may have residual disease in nests in the whole tumor bed. That's not to say that you cannot cause clinical response. You can probably shrink a tumor even in a lobular invasive carcinoma patient. But in my mind, it's unlikely that you're going to convert them from mastectomy to lumpectomy. Now, of course, this issue of response to chemotherapy also occurs in the more adjuvant setting, and obviously we've seen genomic analyses like Oncotype be utilized. To what extent have genomic analyses been looked at in terms of predicting PATH-CR and neoadjuvant therapy? Well, it has been looked at in a couple of small studies. Namely, the first one was a study from Luca Gianni's group in Milan that showed in about 89 patients there were about 12 pathologic complete responders. There was a correlation between the likelihood of achieving a pathologic complete response and Oncotype DX score. So the higher the recurrence score, the higher the probability of achieving pathologic complete response. And when you think about it, it's not all that unexpected, obviously, because we know of the correlation in the adjuvant setting. And also, we know that some of the genes from the recurrence score, for example, HER2 new proliferation, ER and PR, are all genes that have been associated with chemotherapy benefit.
Now, you have the NSABP B40 study, neoadjuvant HER2 negative, right. B41 study, HER2 positive. But just to continue on before you get into those, in terms of, again, this issue of genomic analyses in the HER2 negative study, are you going to be looking at genomic profiles? Well, we obviously will be looking at it as part of the ancillary studies that we're going to do in the trial. We're trying to validate the findings from Luca Gianni's group and also validate some of the findings from B27, where Sun Paik has already looked into genomic profiles. What he's looked at was DNA microarray analysis, trying to find genes that predict for outcome. In fact, he couldn't find a lot of genes predictive of response, but he was able to categorize patients according to their outcome, to low-risk and high-risk patients. And what was interesting was that low-risk patients did very well whether they had a pathologic complete response or not. Hmm. But high-risk patients did well if they had a pathologic complete response, but did very poorly if they did not have a pathologic complete response. Were you able to look at the fraction of PATH-CR based on the high score? There was no correlation between, in other words, the genomic profile did not predict necessarily PATH-CR or not, but it was a profile developed by outcome. So he wasn't as successful in identifying profiles that predicted for PCR versus no PCR, although some of those obviously are there based on ER, PR, her to new, which is essentially similar to what the oncotype data suggests. So this lady is triple positive, so to right. speak, ER, PR, her to positive. And if she hadn't had the axillary node, I mean, do you consider neoadjuvant therapy, including trastuzumab and a HER2-positive patient who wants a lumpectomy? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, this patient here is an interesting situation because in and of itself, she was very easily manageable by a lumpectomy. But here's a patient, and maybe that's what I'm maybe a little different than others in the thinking here about this patient. But I look at this patient as a very good candidate for neoadjuvant chemotherapy because she has the positive axillary node. In other words, this is a patient that she needs, obviously, full chemotherapy and trastuzumab based on the clinical stage of presentation. She needs a full axillary dissection if we did it now. She will need post-lumpectomy or post-mastectomy radiation. So she needs full local regional management. And the whole idea is that perhaps we can use neoadjuvant chemotherapy to tailor our surgery, not only in the breast, but also perhaps in the axilla, potentially downstage in this patient and offer sentinel biopsy. Now, this is a controversial issue because this is a patient with a three centimeter node, and some will say, well, this patient, no matter how she responds to chemotherapy, she needs an X-ray dissection. But there are enough data to suggest that sentinel biopsy in this setting even of clinically nodal positivity proven is accurate, and therefore there is no reason to now want to pursue this in terms of tailoring our surgical management. And you've agreed to be part of our faculty for an upcoming meeting, American Society of Breast Surgeons meeting, and last year when we worked with them, we did a patterns of care study that led into the symposium and kind of look at what practice was. And the single most interesting slide of the entire meeting was what people do in terms of neoadjuvant therapy, in terms of sentinel node biopsy. It was completely all over the map. Where are we with that, and is sentinel node a consideration in a patient like this if she responds? Well, as you know, there has been a lot of information on sentinel biopsy after neoadjuvant chemotherapy, clearly not as much as we have in the upfront setting. When you look at the information collectively, and all these studies are accumulating consistently year after year, you get the feeling, when you look at the literature collectively, that the false negative rate in patients that receive prior neoadjuvant chemotherapy is in the same range as the false negative rate when you do it up front. 
give or take the confidence intervals. It's around 8 to 10%. We have gotten better with false negative rates in the upfront setting, and we also have gotten better in the post-neoadjuvant setting. Interestingly, the B27 experience showed us that the same surgeons that participated in B32 with about a 10% false negative rate had an 11% false negative rate in B27, and also that was a study that there was no protocol in terms of how to do the center and not. Everybody was doing it sort of for practice, and yet in about 420 patients, we had an 11% false negative rate. And I should say, too, in that same project, we also surveyed investigators. And there, we did not see heterogeneity. We saw almost everybody going for post-neoadjuvant sentinel node. Right. Well, intuitively, it makes a lot of sense to want to do it after. And the reason is to take advantage of the downstaging effect of neoadjuvant chemotherapy, assuming that you believe that it works as well after neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and also assuming that you don't lose information that may guide you into your local regional management. And as you know, one of the arguments is by radiation oncology is that we may lose information that is important in terms of making decisions regarding radiotherapy. So again, would you consider sentinel? Let's say you treat this patient. A lot of patients with HER2-positive disease have great responses, path CRs, et cetera. That node completely, you can't feel it. Would you consider sentinel node? Yeah, I personally would, and that's what I do in my practice. And I understand that reasonable people can disagree, but I personally would, and I've done it before. But again, we're not really talking here about going and taking one node, calling the center node, and calling it a day. We're talking about a selective lymphadenectomy, where you may take essentially three or four center nodes, and if you're absolutely convinced that there's no disease in those nodes, I think I'm comfortable enough to stop and not complete an axillary dissection. We don't really know. Obviously, it's two completely different situations. But do you have any feeling in terms of the response in HER2-positive disease when you include trastuzumab compared to the HER2-negative situation? Sure. I mean, most of the data suggests that the rate should be at least on the low estimate, 40% plus, and on the high estimate, close to 60 to 65%. I mean, ironically, greater than what you see with yeah, HER2-negative. The worst disease, but yet... Right. Well, I mean, if you break the HER2-negatives to triple negatives right. and AR-positives, that's where the big difference comes. That's and, and triple negatives are close to almost 45% when you look at some of the data with interesting subtypes. As long as we're talking about the increasing numbers, obviously a study that got a lot of attention was Amon Buzdar's study where he used concurrent anthracyclines and trastuzumab, kind of an interesting strategy. And I guess that's being taken forward now? Yes. This has been confirmed by the American College of Surgeons in a study where one group gets trastuzumab with FEC and Taxol, and the other group gets FEC first, followed by Taxol, trastuzumab. So the idea is to get one arm that essentially mimics as close as it gets to the MD Anderson arm, and the other one is to get an arm where it mimics more the intergroup and NSABP B31 regimen, where the anthracyclines are given first and then trastuzumab is given with Taxol. Any sort of gut feeling about how you think this might play out over the next few years? Do you think we're going to find that using the anthracycline with the trastuzumab really makes a difference or not? Well, I think my bias is that it does. Why? I'm not sure. If it's because you give trastuzumab for longer duration or because you give it with the anthracycline and there's some sort of a synergism there, I'm not sure why it is. But clearly the data from MD Anderson has shown us the highest pathologic response rates even with the extended series where the pathologic response rate is within the 55%. To give you another example, the Germans, Michael Lunds has reported on a phase two study of EC followed by taxoherceptin, and in 200 some patients in the phase two study, P50 
PCR it was about 40%. So there may be a little bit difference of 40% versus 55, 60%. So what were your discussions like with this patient? What are the options that you discussed with her? Okay. Well, obviously, a patient like this, I gave her the option of adjuvant therapy, but I also spent a lot of time discussing with her neoadjuvant. What was her background? Was she kind of reading up on the internet? She was actually a very intelligent patient who understood exactly the issues involved. But when I gave her the whole rationale of why I thought neoadjuvant chemotherapy was a good option for her, she was really all for it. It's really an appealing concept intuitively. I mean, you don't sure. need the rocket science to sort of understand why it right. might be useful. I think it is. And I explained to her that she's a candidate for lumpectomy right now, but also she has a three centimeter axillary node, puts her on stage two at least, and potentially even stage three. And clearly she needs that therapy irrespective of whether she gets it in the adjuvant or neoadjuvant setting. And in the neoadjuvant setting, we have the option of downstaging the disease in the breast. And even if that's another concept that people don't talk a lot about, even if you can still do a lumpectomy now, you may be able to do a more cosmetic lumpectomy by shrinking the tumor down to very small disease or actually pathologic complete response. So the concept of minimizing the extent of lumpectomy is another potential advantage of neoadjuvant chemotherapy, but that's a concept that's not very easy to quantify. What about the concept of in vivo testing to see whether the tumor, as opposed to the blinded situation in adjuvant, do you think that makes sense? I mean, how often, for example, do you see people who get, let's say, chemo, trastuzumab, neoadjuvantly, who actually progress? It's almost non-existent because almost 100% clinical response in the Basler study. But patients really grasp that concept very nicely. They understand that it is going to be you that benefits from therapy, and we can actually monitor that versus taking the tumor out, giving you chemotherapy, knowing that as a group you will benefit, but whether you benefit individually, we won't know forever, even if you never recur you would not know if you benefited because you may have not recurred even without therapy. Now, what about the actual choice of neoadjuvant therapy? Is I mean, you're in a different situation. Obviously, you're an investigator with the NSABP, but do you discuss that with a patient? Do you think surgeons should discuss it with patients or more go to their oncologists? Well, it depends sort of what kind of surgeons. You know, a general surgeon that does a lot of different things, I don't think he's expected to have a lot of knowledge about all different regimens. I think a breast surgical oncologist, I think it's very nice if they can offer some choices because the patient really responds to what the surgeon tells them. He's the first person they encounter with his disease. And clearly, most of my patients, by the time they get to the oncologist, it's a much easier situation for the oncologist because I already have laid out some of the options that are available to them. In terms of the specific choices, obviously you're going to be including trastuzumab, but then the question is, what else? And what about a clinical trial? What happened with this lady in terms of that discussion? Well, the discussion with this lady was that there are two options. One is you accept neoadjuvant chemotherapy as your choice of treatment, and one option is to participate in a clinical trial. And the available trial that we have at this point with the NSABP is the B41 trial, which, as you know, compares... AC followed by paclitaxel plus trastuzumab, neoadjuvant, AC followed by paclitaxel plus lapadinib, or AC followed by paclitaxel plus the combination. So I think that part is a very easy part for patients to accept because they're getting at least the standard versus lapadinib, but two out of three groups at least get trastuzumab either alone or lapadinib. So only one group is the group in the middle that gets lapadinib, which is essentially the experimental arm, if you like, right. or one of the experimental arms. But the beauty of this trial is also that after surgery, everybody gets trastuzumab for another 40 weeks. So 
the only sort of, if you like, risk that you can put yourself into is not getting the 12 weeks of trastuzumab and instead you get in 12 weeks of lapatinib. So I think it's an easy concept for patients to understand. And this lady actually, when she heard that trial, she was all for it and she went on be 41. If she had said, I don't want to participate in a clinical trial, I would offer her the AC followed by trastuzumab paclitaxel regimen but also we have other potential options. We've used in our place the BASDA regimen on a couple of occasions with very good results. I think it's not unreasonable based on the adjuvant data to use six cycles of TCH if you have any concerns regarding cardiac function and potential for cardiotoxicity. Well, this lady is 56. Any particular cardiac risk factors? No. Obesity, diabetes, she hypertension? Not actually, no. She's totally thin, healthy woman. Very healthy woman. And right. In fact, her LVF was normal when we did the mega scan later on. Another thing we found in the survey was that the surgeons were very well well-informed about adjuvant trastuzumab, about HER2 testing. But one thing that we didn't actually test, I would think maybe they probably weren't informed that much about, is lapatinib, because right now it's mainly used in metastatic breast cancer. Can you talk a little bit about what it is and what we know about it and why this kind of strategy, which is also being used in the adjuvant setting, there's trials mm-hmm. looking at this kind of combined or different, you know, whatever, what is lapatinib and you know what sure. do we know about it? Well, as you know, lapatinib is a small molecule dual inhibitor of tyrosine kinase and inhibits essentially the intracellular part of HER2 and also HER1. Now, we can say from the beginning that although it's a dual inhibitor, most of the data suggests that it only works in patients that are HER2 positive. Uh, all the data so far suggests that patients that are HER2 negative, but even in GFR positive, don't get much benefit from lapatinib. So it has a different mechanism of action than trastuzumab. It works in the intracellular domain of HER2. And the clinical data suggests that it's actually a very active drug, both in the metastatic setting, in the neoadjuvant setting, in patients with inflammatory breast cancer, both heavily pretreated or untreated inflammatory breast cancer. And so clearly, and this just is also in her two positive. I know Jenny Chang. She's right. done work both with trastuzumab and lapatinib by themselves. Some of these women in her studies have been large, locally advanced disease, and both of them, both trastuzumab and lapatinib, seem to have pretty good efficacy. Yeah, this is interesting because I was just looking at that abstract too from San Antonio, where it was three weeks of trastuzumab and then docetaxel trastuzumab and then surgery, and then the second part of the study they gave six weeks of lapatinib huh. and then lapatinib docetaxel. And then PCR rates went up to like 70%, which is remarkable. Now, there was a little bit difference in the duration, again, of lapatinib versus, I think, trastuzumab. PCR was about 38% or so. But obviously, you can't compare this to different cohorts because they were sequential and there were other differences. But very, very high pathologic response rates with her to target the therapy. I think that's the bottom line. I guess the other thing, this is adjuvant, so maybe it's not as important as metastatic disease, but it is an oral agent. But also, like the other TKIs, serafinib, sunitinib, EGFR TKIs like jafitinib and erlotinib, even though it's oral, it's not necessarily easy to use. It seems like it has more symptoms than, say, an antibody like trastuzumab. And that is correct. I mean, it's interesting because it has the toxicity of EGFR1 inhibition without the benefit of EGFR inhibition. It has the RAS, the diarrhea, but not necessarily any particular anti-tumor efficacy in these patients. Although, I guess the good news is they're only going to take it for 12 weeks. and. Right. I guess in the adjuvant studies, they're going to try to give it for, for, for a long period of time. The other thing that's kind of interesting, and you see this a lot in cancer biologic therapy right now, is the concept of can you try two different strategies at the same time? Right. Can you combine an intracellular TKI like lapatinib with an extracellular antibody like trastuzumab? 
Again, that's being looked at the metastatic disease. You all are looking at neoadjuvant. But we have seen, I think, maybe some encouraging data in metastatic breast cancer. Yes, sir. I think the paper by Joseph Sonesi in last year's ASCO, I believe, was a paper where lapadinib entrastuzumab was compared to lapadinib alone. So in essence, this was along the same theme of if you progress on trastuzumab, you change the chemotherapy, you give trastuzumab. This one is you add lapadinib, but you continue trastuzumab, and that made the difference in terms of time to progression and response. So what was she randomized to? This patient was actually randomized to the first arm, the standard arm, AC followed by paclitaxel plus trastuzumab. And she was pretty happy about it, I think. Where know. is she right now in the process? She's very early. She just started her first cycle of AC, so she hasn't even gone to any of the paclitaxel trastuzumab therapy. Let's talk about another patient from your practice and maybe flip over to the HER2 negative situation. Yeah, a 54-year-old who presented with a lump in the medial aspect of the right breast for a couple of weeks' duration. The mammogram saw the spigulated mass, and the ultrasound saw the hypoechoic, one-centimeter hypoechoic density, but next to it was another hypoechoic density of 0.6 centimeters. So it was almost like a bilobed area. Both were biopsied and showed to be invasive carcinoma with lobular features. The phenotype was ER strongly positive, PR negative, and HER2 equivocal, but then it was negative by fish, and nuclear grade was 1. So this is a different patient than the one that we discussed before in terms of this is a very endocrine-responsive tumor, nuclear-grade 1, so a well-differentiated tumor, and again, HER2 negative. So the literature in this patient suggests that there is very little chemosensitivity in these patients and a lot of sensitivity to endocrine therapy. Now, interestingly, this was a patient, it was a small-breasted patient. This was in the inner part of the breast. And although this was a small-breasted patient, 2.2-centimeter mass, you could remove with a lumpectomy, although obviously you leave a little bit of a divot there because of the inner part of the breast. Now, incidentally, one of my biases, so to speak, is that a patient like this really doesn't benefit a lot more from mastectomy. And what I say by that is, if you do a lumpectomy in a patient like this, you obviously add post-lumpectomy radiotherapy, which essentially covers the field, because this patient, you can give them very nice wide margins, circumferential margins, but it's your AP margin, your anterior and posterior margin that potentially are compromised because they're bound by the skin and the chest wall. And those you can't get any wider because you're eccentrically on the inner part of the breast. So for those patients, my bias is to try to do a lumpectomy more so than a mastectomy because if this patient has a mastectomy, has negative nodes, there's really no indication to give post-mastectomy radiation. And maybe they're at more risk for local regional failure. So this is another mid-50s woman, 54 years old. What were her thoughts about mastectomy and what were her thoughts about chemotherapy? Yeah, we talked about both local and systemic therapy options. She was a candidate for lumpectomy, even if she was small-breasted from the location of the tumor, and she was willing to undergo breast conserving surgery. She was actually interested in breast conservation. We also talked briefly about neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and I explained to her that in a patient like this and with this phenotype, the rates of pathologic response are very low. In some studies, actually close to zero. In some other studies, single digit. So it's very unlikely that I would be able to totally downsize this tumor, and although I maybe can shrink it and do a little bit more cosmetic lumpectomy, my experience with invasive lobulars are that you still have nests of cells left in the area of the tumor bed. So I'm more biased towards offering surgery up front for these patients and then adjuvant therapy. And in terms of chemotherapy, was she willing to receive that if it was recommended? Yes, she was, although I explained to her again that a patient like this would be looking at, if she's not negative, 
and maybe questionably if she's not positive, but if she's not negative, we'll clearly be looking at genomic profiling to make a decision whether she needs chemotherapy or not and whether she benefits from chemotherapy or not. And that's another reason why I would not do neoadjuvant chemotherapy in a patient like this unless I can show by Oncotype DX that this patient has a high recurrence score where things change. So I was actually going to ask you that in terms of this lady seems based on the way you view it and she views it to be heading towards an oncotype, although we would point out it's about 2.5 centimeters. There might be some docs out there who might balk, or if you stretch it out to 3.5 or 4, what about where are you with tumor size? Yeah, I'm comfortable up to about 4 centimeters. And when you look at the data from the NSABP B14 validation, when you look at tumor sizes from essentially zero, was actually at least one because this was back in the era of B14. But between one and four centimeters, it's amazing how consistent the data are relative to the discriminating capability of Oncotype DX in terms of outcome. In fact, there's almost no difference if you're one to two or two to four centimeters. When you go to past four centimeters, the number of patients is so small that you can really make a lot of reasonable conclusions in terms of how it works in these patients. So would you consider, I mean, of course, you don't know her nodal status at this right. point, but, I mean, would you consider getting an archetype before that just to decide about neoadjuvant therapy? I think that if this was a patient where I had to do a mastectomy based on the presentation of tumor, and if I knew that she had, let's say, a high oncotype score that would benefit from chemotherapy, then I would probably offer her neoadjuvant, then that would be a patient that would try to get oncotype on a core biopsy. And I think it can be done nowadays, so one would do that. But in this particular patient, given that I could do a lumpectomy, I started more towards adjuvant therapy and surgery up front. So just a side issue, are there any situations where you use neoadjuvant endocrine therapy? There are, but they're far and few in between. A patient with more locally advanced, large, operable cancer, particularly older patients where they're not very good candidates for chemotherapy, but I need to downstage them to be able to do their surgery or maybe downstage them to a lumpectomy, I have used neoadjuvant endocrine therapy. And again, this is another situation that if a patient like this was a candidate for mastectomy and I had to use neoadjuvant therapy, and let's say I did the oncotype test and it came as low, I would offer them neoadjuvant hormonal therapy, not neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So what happened with this woman? We went ahead and did a lumpectomy and sentinel biopsy. Four sentinels were negative for disease by immunohistochemistry and HNE and IHC. And interestingly, for patients with lobular invasive carcinoma, you have to be very careful in the intraoperative assessment of sentinel nodes because these are the patients potentially that may give you the false negative because lobular invasive cancer cells really mimic sometimes lymphocytes. So they're very small and they can hide in the nodes. So this is one of the categories that some actually always use immunohistochemistry for lobular carcinoma in the nodes, even in the days before sentinel node. So, luckily, she was negative by intraoperative assessment and by permanent pathology. So, now we are at the point that we need to send Oncotype DX for her. We did already, and waiting for the results to make a decision regarding adjuvant therapy. That's interesting. Any other caveats or pearls about sentinel node? Any observations you've made about maybe things that people do that maybe they ought to rethink? Well, my sort of pet peeve about sentinel node, and I think... Many sort of don't realize, particularly maybe general surgeons, is that the whole sentinel node concept refers to either one or more sentinel nodes, and more likely more than one. The average number of sentinel nodes in most of the studies is close to three. And so I think 
depending on the number of sentinels that you take out as a surgeon, I think your false negative rates are really dependent on the number of nodes that you remove. So what happens a lot of times, and I think what is responsible for the false negative rates that we see even close to 10% sometimes, is the fact that sometimes the sentinel is taken out and people call it a day. They don't put the probe back and look very carefully to find any node that has either radioactivity, is blue, or is palpable. And if you do that and diligently remove as many nodes as they qualify, then your false negative rate would be certainly 5% or less. In our place, actually, I was curious enough to see how many sentinels of our surgeons take, and then sort of anonymously we look at surgeons, and the average number was about two. Interestingly, my number was four. <laughs> so I am on the conservative side, if you like, or the aggressive side. So I think I'm a little bit over taking sentinel nodes versus some other people taking less than the average. But the average would be about three. So what's your false negative rate? Institutionally, our false negative rate is 5%. How about yours individually? Do you know? I'm not, no, I don't know mine individually. Interesting. I, I suspect it will be that or less because, again, based on the number of nodes removed. And institutionally, your colleagues there are all generally trying to take as many sentinel nodes as possible? Yes. Yes. They all sort of have been indoctrinated in the B32 trial and they participate in B32. Now, this lady has a strongly ER positive, PR negative yeah, tumor. Right. What's her menopausal status? She is actually postmenopausal based on the fact that she has not had a menstrual period for about one year. So it's right at the crisp of being postmenopausal. How do you think through hormonal therapy in a patient on, the, I guess you'd call her perimenopausal, really? Right. A patient like this definitely will do FSH and LADS and estradiol before I call her postmenopausal if I will offer an aromatase inhibitor. So unless I am definitely positive that she's postmenopausal, I would probably go with tamoxifen. And I'm curious in terms of endocrine therapy, what's come out in the last, let's say, year on endocrine therapy that surgeons should know about? Well, I think the big news on endocrine therapy out of San Antonio, where we heard the results of presentations relative to the sequence of tamoxifen followed by an aromatase inhibitor versus an aromatase inhibitor up front, or versus, in the case of the B198, an aromatase inhibitor for two years followed by tamoxifen. And the bottom line from this presentation, at least to the best of my ability to analyze the data early on, is that there was no difference between the three different strategies. And if you cut into the details, though, and look at the curves, it appears that patients that went on letrozole up front did a little bit better. Those that went on tamoxifen did a little bit worse, but then when they were switched to letrozole, the rate of failure changed. So the lines then became parallel. So they're always a little bit behind, but not dramatically so. And interestingly, those patients that were on letrozole first, but then switched to tamoxifen, they did every bit as good as letrozole for five years. Although I guess it wasn't like super powered to really dissect right. that out. Right. So, you know, I don't know if it proved anything yet, but it certainly said that Either of the strategies is not unreasonable, which is sort of what I would have predicted before the data came out. I don't want to be like Monday morning quarterback, but I didn't think based on the Austrian study and some of the other upfront studies that those ratio were all that different than we would see a big difference. And in fact, that's what this study showed. Although it kind of looks like if you start on tamoxifen, maybe it's a little bit hard to catch up. Right. 
Exactly. So, as opposed to, as you said, if you start on an AI and then switch. Right. Because if you really, let's say from an economic standpoint, if you wanted to give only two to three years of an AI, you better off start with an AI and switch to tamoxifen. Of course, then that poses the question, what happens after the two to three years of tamoxifen? Because we have MA17 shown that if you give letrozol after five years of tamoxifen, you have benefit. So I think the next set of questions may relate to the alternating type of therapy versus continuous therapy with an AI. I guess, too, the issue of the side effects and toxicity profile comes up in terms of comparing them. And I don't know, you have symptomatic issues with the AIs in terms of reauthorologies, but you don't have the endometrial cancer and deep vein thrombosis. So I don't know, what's your take on just that issue? I think that's a very important issue. With NAIs, there are toxicities that you see coming and you can deal with. With tamoxifen, sometimes you get toxicities that come out of the clear blue, such as thromboembolic events or endometrial cancer. It seems to me, though, that the sequential strategy may be the best of both worlds because you get a little bit of both, but then you cannot counteract one with one treatment, counteract the side effects or another treatment. And it may be even in the long run in terms of cardiovascular endpoints, maybe the switch strategy, and again, I'm not sure which one to give first, but the switch strategy may be a better choice. Yeah, I was kind of disappointed. I was sort of thinking about Craig Jordan's hypothesis of the estrogen maybe coming in at a point where the estrostat's been reset, that maybe the letrozole to tamoxifen R might have been like a real home run or a big bump. But, I mean, as you said, it was you couldn't even see the difference. But it also gets into the issue, again, of the toxicities. And, you know, one of the areas, I don't know where things are right now in the NSABP B35 DCIS study comparing anastrozole to tamoxifen, because there you would think that the toxicity side effects issue is going to be really important with so few events. Sure, absolutely. And obviously, but... Do uh, you have this, any, anything going on with that study? No, this study is closed now for a couple of years, and it's in follow-up. So whenever the required number of events is achieved, then we do an analysis. But it's interesting because this study relies more on the prevention of contralateral breast right, cancer or right. ipsilateral new breast cancers. Mm-hmm. So maybe the benefit will even be higher or larger than we saw in the adjuvant trials because you're not going to prevent a lot of distant disease. It's more a new primary. I mean, I think what we've seen is pretty encouraging Absolutely. in the adjuvant setting in terms of it looks like it has maybe more of a kick than tamoxifen. Sure. I mean, the AI is there. We expect about a 40 to 50% reduction in new breast cancer events. And I guess you all wanted to study that, or what was the study you wanted to well, do? Well, we wanted to study in prevention, in right, primary in prevention, prevention yeah. with letrozole. It was a right. study comparing raloxifen, which is essentially right. the winner of the P2 trial, to letrozole for five years. But this study did not go forward based on funding. Last question is, what are some of the trial concepts that are being discussed right now in the NSABP for breast cancer that maybe are going to move forward in the next couple of years? Well, one that actually I can tell you about a couple of studies that one that just started, which is very interesting, and one that will be starting almost in the next you know month or so, and then another study that we'll be planning. But the first is a patient is a trial for patients with DCIS that test positive for HER2 new. And this is protocol B43. That's Melody Cobley's study. Melody Cobley's study. She's been talking about that for years. Yes. This is a study where we know from previous studies that about half of the patients with DCIS may be HER2 positive. And obviously that needs some sort of confirmation prospectively, but nevertheless, that's a very intriguing observation. It's kind of weird if you think about it. It is weird. Why? Why would you have higher, you know, higher? It should be the other way around. Yeah, and and invasive, it's 20, 25%. Unless HER2 new overexpression is an early growth signal that 
gets lost for some reason because something else takes over. That's one explanation. But clearly, those patients that are HER2 positive are also higher rates of having comedian necrosis, high-grade DCIS, and more aggressive behavior. And obviously, what we have learned in preclinical models is that there is synergies between trastuzumab and radiotherapy. So with this observation, Melody actually came to us with this concept of trying to test a very short duration of trastuzumab along with radiotherapy as a radiosensitizer, essentially, for patients with DCIS. So patients that test positive centrally for her to new patients with DCIS, can be randomized to radiation alone after lumpectomy or radiation plus two doses of trastuzumab, eight milligrams per kilogram loading dose on week one of radiotherapy, and then a repeat six milligrams per kilogram dose three weeks later. And what are you going to do if they're ER positive? We can give them hormonal therapy at the discretion of the investigator. Right. But this is essentially after radiation anyway. Right, right. So this study just opened a couple months ago. It's gone through IRBs. We have now already five patients accrued. I'm very excited about this study. The other study that it's also a different concept, we've never done a study like this, is a study taking patients that have neoadjuvant chemotherapy and then have residual disease at the time of surgery, either in the breast and or the axillary nodes. And after long thought about what to do in these patients, we came up with the idea of testing an angiogenesis inhibitor. And for this particular trial, we're going to use sunitinib. So the idea that they're demonstrating chemo resistance. Chemo resistance. So more chemotherapy probably is not going to do much good. And in these cases, because there are high risk for recurrence, maybe angiogenesis inhibition will make a difference. What do we know about the recurrence rate or progression rate in these patients? It's high. It's clearly high, and it's dependent on factors such as nodal status, clearly. If you're not negative, you still do okay. It's still obviously significantly In other increased. words, no negative, but tumor in the breast. Tumor in the breast, it's still not very high, but it's clearly much higher than if you get a pathologic complete response. But if you have disease in the nodes, you do actually very poorly. Yeah. Now, it, it also depends on what happens while you get neoadjuvant chemotherapy. In other words, if you give neoadjuvant chemotherapy, you don't even have clinical response. That's a very dire situation, meaning that you're very chemo-resistant, and no matter what you do in terms of chemotherapy, you're not going to get much benefit. Now, the tricky situation is in patients that do get a good clinical response to neoadjuvant chemotherapy but still have residual disease. There you wonder, and oncologists wonder sometimes, if I'd given a little bit more of the neoadjuvant regimen in the adjuvant setting, would it make a difference? Nobody has done a trial to prove it, but for those patients, actually, such patients would allow adjuvant chemotherapy if the investigator was to give it. But they will give it, and then they will randomize the patient again to sunitinib or placebo for a year. So that's B45. This is the trial that will be starting fairly soon. And in terms of the future, a couple of trials that we'll be working on, one which is a very exciting concept is taking patients with HER2 equivocal or HER2 low expression, Mm. if you like, like 1 plus, 2 plus by immunohistochemistry. The Soon-Pig thing. The Soon-Pig thing that based on a subset analysis from B31, he showed that essentially the benefit from trastuzumab was seen even in patients that on central review Although they were HER2 positive by some investigator out there, some pathologists out there, our central review did not meet the criteria. So we're 1 plus, 2 plus, but FIS negative. Those patients had essentially every bit as much benefit from trastuzumab as the truly HER2 positive patients. Yeah, we've been following that since he first presented it. I guess it was ASCO 2007. He presented at a think tank we had in our place 
about a year ago. Really fascinating. I guess the thing we had heard was there was going to be some kind of round robin on the pathology. Right. Is that being yes. done? We're in the process of finishing that. So hopefully so within the next couple sure of months. sure document that these are hurting Document negative. that indeed the other pathologists concur with what Sun Peik found. And if that is shown, then the trial will move forward. And now we have good support from industry as well as the NCI. I mean, that. can you imagine if it really had a, I mean, now you're talking about the other 75, 80% of people. Well, we looked at actually that institution and a couple exactly. other people. About 40% of all patients fall into the category of HER2 equivocal. Oh, I see. Lock. So you're not including HER2 neg- zero. Not zero. Uh, Although there has been some recent discussion of that, but I think we're going to probably stick to the 1 plus, 2 plus. We want to see some HER2 expression, but not the HER2 expression that puts you in the positive range. Although we didn't have clearly enough cases to make any comment of the HER2 zeros. But this concept, even if it doesn't work as well as Herceptin does in HER2-positive patients, let's say if we have half the benefit, that would be about a 25% reduction, which is far better than we've seen with a lot of other therapies that we propose to these patients. The other thing about the trial is, to be safe, we propose a non-anthracycline-containing regimen. So we're going to offer these patients TC, tocitaxel cyclophosphamide, for we haven't decided for sure on that. We could be even six cycles, depending on some of the recent data. But a non-anthracycline-based regimen, so the cardiotoxicity will be minimized for this patient's group. That's one I never thought I was going to see, but interesting. Yeah, it's a new concept. The other thing that supports sort of this concept, there's multiple factors that actually can support it. But one is that in all the studies of trastuzumab, there is no evidence of increasing benefit from trastuzumab with increasing levels of her 2 Right, right. I mean, you can have 15 copies or ratio right. of, of 15 Which or 20. Which is totally not what we expected. Right. You would think... That, like ER. Right. And that's what Sin's exactly point is right. with ER. It's not the same. So yeah. maybe the immunologic effect of trastuzumab, once you get into the cell, maybe enough to elicit the cascade and kill the cell. It may be that micrometastases have her too when the original primary doesn't. So there are multiple reasons to justify moving forward with a trial like that.